Here at the creek mouth the fields run on to the river. The mud deltaid and barring out of its rich alluvial harboured bones and dread waste. A rack of crate wooden condoms and fruit rinds. Old tins and jars and ruined household artefacts that rear from the fecal mire of the flats like landmarks in the trackless vales of dementia precox. A world beyond all fantasy, malevolent and tactile and disassociate. The blown light bulbs like shorn polyps, semi-translucent and skull-coloured, bobbing blindly down, and spectral eyes of oil, and now and again the beached and stinking forms of fetal humans bloated like young birds, moon-eyed and bluish or stale grey. Beyond in the dark, the river flows in a sluggard ooze towards southern seas, running down out of the rain-flattened corn and petty crops and river-loam gardens of upcountry landkeepers, Grating along like bone dust, a freight with the past, dreams dispersed in the water some way, nothing ever lost. Houseboats ride at their horses, the neap mud along the shore lies ribbed and slick, like the carvenous flitch of some beast, hugely founded and beyond the country rolls away to the south and the mountains. Where hunters and woodcutters once slept in their boots by the dying light of their thousand fires, and went on. Old Teutonic forebears with eyes incandescent by the visionary light of a massive rapacity. Wave on wave of the violent and the insane, their brains stoked with sporeless analogues of all that was. Lean Aryans with their abrogate Semitic chapbook reenacting the dramas and parables therein, and mindless and pale with a longing that nothing saves Dark's total restitution would appease. We are come to a world within the world, in these alien reaches, these morgus sinks and interstitial wastes that the righteous see from carriage and car another life dreams, ill-shapen or black or deranged, fugitive of all order, strangers in every land. The night is quiet, like a camp before battle, the city beset by a thing unknown, and will it come from forest or sea? The Marengas have walled the pale. The gates are shut, but lo, the thing's inside, and can you guess his shape? Where he's kept, or what's the counter of his face? Is he a weaver, bloody shuttle shot through a time warp, a carder of souls from the world's nap? Or a hunter with hounds, or do bone horses draw his dead cart through the streets, and does he call his trade to each? Dear friend, he is not to be dwelt upon, for it is by just such wise that he's invited in. The opening there, part of the opening, to Cormac McCarthy's 1979 novel, Sutri, S-U-T-T-R-E-E, Sutri, named after the protagonist, Cornelius Sutri, who throughout the novel we pretty much know only as Sutri. He's only ever referred to as Sutri. This is McCarthy's fourth novel, just be before, a few years before he publishes Blood Meridian, which was my previous review, and I'll draw in Blood Meridian because I think actually these two books put side by side both biographically in terms of McCarthy's um, chronology, and their themes are actually uh, closer than seems to me has been commented on Sutri for me is McCarthy's novel which doesn't get anywhere near as much attention as it should especially compared to you know The Road which I will at some point review but 
This to me is is his best. Now I know I said in the last review the Blood Meridian, you know, if I had to name my favorite book, Blood Meridian would be it. And so with that being my favorite book, and with that being considered the sort of canonical magnum magnum opus of Cormac McCarthy, that is Blood Meridian, how can I say that this is his best? Well, I would just want to say that I think you can split the two in this sense that, okay, we, we can acknowledge that Blood Meridian is this masterpiece of Western literature, which is drawing on other masterpieces of Western literature as to sort of enter into a very sincere dialogue with the continuation of that canon so to speak um and it's taking on you know leviathan like themes um and so in that sense it's sort of it can be recognized as the magnum opus as his masterwork with that said i still think such is his best and this is seems to be an opinion which is held um, from a lot of people who are into McCarthy that Sutri is still the unsung gem in a way. Um, once again, to, to do my very um, somewhat lazy way of formulating appreciations of authors' literature, if we go to somewhere like Goodreads, you'll see that Sutri is fairly far down the list in terms of its amount of reviews and amount of interest. Um, and it, it, it's not really a surprise why i'll go through the plot then i'll give some analysis and then i'll draw in why perhaps it has been a little bit more ignored than other books though it certainly hasn't been ignored entirely it's uh, you know it is a masterpiece after all but there's certain reasons for it but suchry is before i just jump to the plot suchry is existential it's discussing modernism, nihilism, the very notion of the youthful, specifically male protagonist. It's extremely funny, and I won't actually read out the sections of, of which are humorous here because I just I haven't got the ability to really get that across, but it's really, really funny. Uh, McCarthy's humor at its best. Um, and it's autobiographical as well. I mean, we're, we're talking about McCarthy's time in Knoxville here, but whether to say it's autobiographical in the sense of the character's essence, if you want to put it that way, or whether or not there is these specific things we could draw from it is sort of a dangerous line to, to, to walk. But anyway, the novel begins with um, with Sutri, Cornelius Sutri, who lives on a houseboat or on the fringes of society on the Tennessee River. Um, and it begins with him observing the police pull a suicide victim from the river. Um, we find he's living alone in this houseboat once again, really on the fringes. This is really emphasized. These slums that he's living with, uh, within, uh, filled with, you know, beggars, thieves, um, witches to a certain degree, down and outs, the, the downtrodden, the outcast. I mean, this is quite literally the, the, uh, like a purified, um, outhouse, in the earth, in the world, in America, for the the literal definition of social misfits, almost to the point of there's there's a sort of grotesque nature coming through, but there is a deep sympathy from Sutri. Um, we 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 understand that he's left a life of luxury. Um, he's rejected his parents' influence. He's abandoned his wife and his son. Um, he's renounced his Catholic faith. He's renounced his social status. And he's renounced career prospects to be 
to be a fisherman, but to say he's a fisherman isn't in any professional sense. It really appears throughout the novel. And he, he comes back to fishing catfish from the river time and time again as his sort of means for an income. But it really is a means, it mostly appears for an income which just allows him enough money to really bumble about and drink a lot and get into scrapes and just keep eating and living in the houseboat in a sort of positive, um, intense malaise at times. There is an, a massive amount of characters within this, uh, within this novel. And in a sense, there's, for me, there's, there's two main characters in a way. Um, not to say there's the, the other one is main. So you have Cornelius Sutri. I'll just call him Sutri from now on, as the book does. You have Sutri, but you also have Gene Harriger, who many people who've read the novel is sort of the most memorable character outside of Sutri, of course, but he's extremely memorable because he's extremely um, funny. He's very dim-witted. Um, and Sutri, we, we come to find out, meets him during a short stint in a sort of light prison, not a full prison, more of a, a workhouse camp style prison. Um, Harrogate, we find out, was sent to prison because he's been caught violating, that is basically, fucking watermelons. And he hasn't just had sex with one, he's had sex with, I believe it's about 17. And Harrogate is very dim-witted, he's constantly, every time we, we, he reappears throughout the novel, he's constantly doing things which border on the absurd as a means to not have to re-enter, um, the, the, the modern society which this novel is constantly pushing against and this is the primary discussion for me that I want to tackle once I get past the plot um, Sutri has this real sympathy for, for Harrogate and he helps him sort of stay out of trouble he helps him, he's constantly giving him advice but um, and I should say there is a lot of spoilers here um, Harrogate you know is really his own man he lives in a viaduct um, under a bridge, he ends up killing bats, using dynamite to blow up a tunnel so he can try burgle something in the city. Um, and then alongside this, the other main characters really are alcoholics, prostitutes, hermits, and a, a strange witch who reappears a couple of times. And there are multiple women throughout Sutri's life. One is a, a prostitute, one's a teenage girl from a destitute family. Um, and then we we have this uh, in the in the background you have this sort of acknowledgement of his previous wife and child and at a certain point he um he ends up at the funeral of his child and um well he watches it from afar and then he buries the boy alone after everyone else leaves um and then nearing to the end and i will explain why this plot my explanation of this plot is so fragmented nearing the end um he falls ill with typhoid fever and has this extremely vivid and mccarthy-esque hallucination um which enters into discussions on meaning and nihilism and the whole book it, it, it's like a intensified um purified moment of the book you know, are we going to see a redemption? Are we going to see a salvation? Are we going to see some huge moment of overcoming? We'll get to that. Um, and eventually, um, Harrogate is also arrested um, and sent to jail. And Sutri eventually has has a, has an overcoming of his identity problem. Maybe I will get to this. Um, and he leaves Knoxville, he leaves where he's been seeking a new life now why was that plot so fragmented in my own explanations of it when really the really the, the, the 
the absolute outline of the plot that we that I can give is that we have Sutri living on the fringes of society, entering into a consistent dialogue between what I've spoken about before as known as exit, uh, f- you know, the fringes of society, outside the nature of outsiders, trying to not be drawn into, some might even go as far as to say the rat race, um, and what it is for a man who I believe is, about, I estimate between about 28 and mid-30s, what it is for a young man to enter into that lifestyle and live in that lifestyle and what does it mean in terms of identity meaning um and grace strangely now the reason my explanation was so was so strange and sort of fragmented is because the book is fragmented it's a series of loosely connected snippets though it doesn't explicitly explicitly come across as this it's not aphoristic it's not you know a collection of short stories it is a whole but it's very holistic in the sense that as soon as you finished it you want to reread it because there's a fragmented nature to it in terms of the stylization of the storytelling and of the narrative is itself um empathetic of the lifestyle that Sutri Harrogate, his other friends, J-Bone, Ocean Frog, were and are living, which is to say that they just enter into these... Someone someone walks into Sutri's houseboat and the, the ball gets rolling. You know, we'll just go to a bar. We'll just go here. This just happens. And things, things are just happening in this world um, to the characters. And they are placed in, a, in, a, in this slums where they're somewhat at the mercy of a strange um, non-hand of fate, a strange nothingness. Um, th- however, despite that, the novel has an ex- uh, a very extreme preciseness. There are dates, holidays, days of the weeks, uh, days of the week. The the season seasons change. The the weather patterns change very explicitly and in a very noticeable nature. Um, and it spans about six six years from fifty to fifty five. Um, it's meticulous. You know, we have marketplaces, structures, streets. Everything is mapped. In fact, there is a site online where someone has mapped all the buildings and has taken photos from uh, as close to that sort of era that we'd have been talking about. Um, there are a mass of characters, as I've said, and there's constant reoccurrences and a sort of deluge of just ongoing something that isn't stopping um lifestyle everything dipping in and out everyone's hands in each other's pockets from from Sutri's perspective it always seems that he can keep an eye on everything that's going on and nothing's really going on it's the same old blind man who's drinking again tonight it's the same person who's just randomly cooking a stew that Sutri happens to walk into the house and see them and has some and a lot of the narrative is unfolded in the sense of Sutri ending up in a place due to being somewhat just meandering and it's this meandering that I really want to be- begin with uh, in relation to the river. So we have Sutri living in this houseboat on this river. Now, I want to draw in because, th- and this, you begin with the river in that section that um, I read out. The, you, the, the novel begins with this beautiful, beautiful piece of about th- uh, three pages 
it's three yeah three pages of prose um focusing really on the the geology the details the river the location the existential feeling but the river i believe is an unsung character of this novel because when we get round right to the nearing the end of the novel when Sutri goes through his um typhoid based hallucination um a priest priest comes to see him because he thinks he might be dying because he's in a real bad way and he says do you want to confess and it seems to be that the priest is asking because he thinks he might die so it's a final confession and Sutri says well I've done that he's already done that within his hallucination he's spoken to something there but when the when the conversation goes on and begins to refer to God Sutri states and this is a quote he is not a thing nothing ever stops moving and so that, for me, is the, the one of the underlying notions of Sutri is Heraclitus. You know, not, not, not only, I mean, we really need to take Heraclitus's notion of one cannot step into the same river twice very seriously, um, because it wraps up all the discussions of the book into a neat bow for us, in a way. You have identity. You have meaning. You have the inability of meaning, nihilism. Now, identity. One cannot step into the same river twice. Not only have, has the river changed because it's constantly flowing, as Sutri states, nothing ever stops moving. Not only is the river constantly moving and not changing, when you step into it, you are the river in the sense that you are part of the world, which has never stopped changing. So you are not the same either. So there's this problem of identity. You know, you're not the same. The river's not the same. Um, the, the, the river itself, as this metaphor for the world, is something which never stops moving. Um, now, why why draw that out so much is, well, what are we, what are we explicitly told about the river um, from that section that I read out to, to underlie the foundation? Of, you know, what's the foundation of the river in the sense that McCarthy's talking about? Well, what's in the river? Condoms. And literally, uh, both somewhat more um, abstractly in that in the, in the reading that I gave, but explicitly later on, there's condoms and there is a dead baby floating past. Now, what's interesting about the river, in that sense, okay, we've already got this very McCarthyan pessimistic river filled with condoms and dead children, um, and strewn with you know all kinds of crap and human detritus and relics. Something is flowing by that we cannot retrieve. Now, alongside this, where is Sutri? Well, he's in a he's in a houseboat which is uh, tethered up. Occasionally, I believe this is right. He goes out in a in a, in a smaller boat, or he may go out in his houseboat, but he's consistently reluctant to step into the river now what's what's this really saying for me he seems reluctant he's always watching the river from afar this reminds me of someone like Michel Say who talks about standing on the riverbank Sutri doesn't really want to take the risk of putting his feet into the river of the possibility of putting his feet anywhere near meaning it's not that his life is meaningless it's that he constantly doesn't really want to set himself too near meaning. He doesn't want to be part of that. He doesn't want to be in the river. He doesn't even want to step in the river. So in the sense that one cannot step in the same river twice, if we were to really expand that out and spread it perhaps a bit too thinly, but, you know, 
stepping and one you to to step you need one you need an identity and it's in Sutri's reluctance to ever actually step and say you know what I'm I'm stepping in here today I'm doing this thing that he's constantly struggling struggling with his identity you know it's a novel about a young man's identity who really doesn't necessarily have one because he's renounced anything that perhaps he saw as you know old hat cliche inauthentic he really wanted he wanted to go you know renounce catholic faith religion social status and career like the three major cornerstones of what we could consider to be a uh, structured modern life have been renounced for this life in the fringes as a fisherman but in this sense there has been an inability to replace it with anything other than what drinking and bumbling about with your friends in pool halls and dirty bars and in what seems to be a sort of uh, abstract swampland um and what happens when you've reduced or moved away from and, and denounced that that lifestyle is you end up with really two factors which are throughout the novel which interplay with each other but can't really speak for themselves and so you have survival one of the things the characters are just trying to do most of the time is make a make a buck Right, uh, you know, sell a few catfish. I mean, how much money is that going to get you? He's living in a fairly crummy houseboat, which uh, throughout the course of the novel becomes extremely dilapidated. At one point, there's a dead body in it that when he's been away for a while and all the windows are smashed in. Um, so one point is survival, and we see this really more emphatically with Gene Harrogate's character, who's you know going to such lengths of survival. At one point, for instance, one of the funniest scenes in the novel, to be honest, um, the hospital is offering money for bats which have fallen out of the sky because they've got rabies. And so they, they, they just want to, you know, know where they've come from, make sure they get them out of the population so that there's not going to be a potential spread. And they're giving people about, I think it's $2, which is quite a lot of money. It might be $1, but it, whatever it was, it was a fair amount. You could get a few meals for it or whatever. And Sutri sympathetically says to Harrogate, who's always struggling far more for money because he's, he's, he's a bit slow. He says to him, you know, you, you could go get a bit of money for that. So Harrogate takes it to the hospital. They give him a dollar and he's sort of in disbelief that this is really a scheme that's going on. But in a strange twist, which is really the absurdity of Harrogate's character, because on the one hand, he's a bit of an imbecile. Um, he's a bit slow. But on the other hand, his ingenuity with regard to the fringes of society is turned up to the maximum level because now he he crafts a boat out of two car hoods and begins slingshotting bats out of the air with a uh, with a form of poison and then literally takes two sacks of dead bats to the hospital to try and make literally hundreds of dollars they sort of turn him away because it's clear what he's been doing and and but the, the, and then again later on he then tries to literally dynamite under the town to to rob somewhere the point being that the the notion of survival in the fringes is turned up to such an extreme that it's almost unrecognizable and it turns into uh, a, a, a feat, an almost anti-heroic feat for its own sake. And this is, this is one of the underlying dialogues and narratives which is happening throughout the novel, which is the d discussion between modernity and, to be honest, I'd say exit. It's, uh, I believe... Junger's Amishville was written in the 80s. So this is uh, this is pre-Amishville. And this, for me, is uh, uh, an anarch novel. 
But the problem with these Anarchs, they're maybe not necessarily Anarchs because they don't have, they don't seem to have anything they want to do or want to accomplish or places they want to go. And so you've thrown these characters into the only place they can really end up because it's the only place you can really get away with doing basically nothing all day and struggling purely with your just existential dilemma of being alive all day. Not to say that they're depressed or anxious or anything like that, though there's certainly a lot of alcoholism, but they're thrown into this and not, you know, in terms of writing, they're not given anything. They have these pasts, but they've renounced the pasts. And, and so you're left with characters who've left and the modern world which they've left we rarely see a comment on it we don't meet people who are who have careers when we meet priests they're not the kind of priests we meet in mccarthy's other novels who are sort of bastions of a faith which in a nietzschean sense has long since died these are small town priests um who are just uh, a bit more bureaucratic in a way but we don't see careerists we don't see big businessmen we don't really the only what we could say nuclear family that we see is within um within the lifestyle that Sutri is uh within himself and so this just really you have characters surviving and searching for a truth within a place where no anchor has been given for them and everything is always moving and all that is moving is just washing past them the dregs dead babies and condoms and detritus of the society they've sort of sought to leave and so it's a spiritual quest which is imminent within a world which isn't as emphatically um theologically dead or altered in the Gnostic sense as Blood Meridian but I would argue and I'm not trying to put them both in the same world like some sort of universe but I would argue that the you know Nick Monk's reading of Judge Holden as uh, the uh, symbol of the enlightenment of this world which has now come in to overtake you know myth capital N nature the, the, within the same world because it's it's that thing which was implicated in it and installed and is merciless so many years ago which Sutri is now witnessing uh, as the reasoning for why the river is full of condoms you know and so it's that thing which was implicated so long ago which he is really struggling with um, and as the novel goes on, I mean, there's this one of the famous quotes from Sutri, there are no absolutes in human misery and things can always get worse, which is a great quote. But it is true, but you're not entirely sure in what sense, um, how it's true. You know, is it qualitative? Is it quantitative? And for Sutri, it seems to be things get worse in terms of his existential dilemma. It's an ongoing journey, which is an anti-journey because there's just less and less and less meaning and the acts get more and more fragmented and the situations he ends up in are more violent and disturbed and deranged to the point of uh, a sort of 
a journey up the mountain at one point, but it turn it doesn't turn into the quintessential journey up the mountain. It turns into basically a schizophrenic breakdown, and he returns to society not as you know the wise. Now the the normal person goes up the mountain to seek God and returns as the wise man, perhaps in a Zarathustrian sense. He goes up the mountain, has a schizophrenic breakdown, and comes back a malnourished mess who no one even wants to talk to and, and and actively kicks out of the shops that he tries to go into. And so what happens, you know, usually in these, these you know, the, the, the cliche quintessential uh, archetype of that journey is someone who would go up the mountain, go on this kind of quest and come back with new knowledge. And then their surroundings change and their life changes from that journey. But what happens here is he, go, he, he goes and has this sort of breakdown and meltdown in the mountains, comes back and he's back at the, the riverboat. Again, he's back at the houseboat and it's in worse shape because nothing has been upheld and there's nothing here to uphold. You know, he's not a savior. You know, you could, you could very hastily say, oh, well, he's a fisherman in, in some sort of uh, Simon Peter type sense, but he's not a fisher of men. Um, he's not a savior. And uh, he's hastily trying to define himself with, with each encounter. I'll give another excerpt. Yellow leaves were falling all through the forest and the river was filled with them, shuttling and winking, golden leaves that rushed like poured coins in the tail water, a perishable currency forever renewed. In an old grandfather time, a ballad transpired here, some love gone wrong and a sable-tressed girl drowned in an ice-green pool where she was found with her hair spreading like ink on the cold and cobbled river floor. Ebbing in her bindings, languorous as a sea-dream, looking up with the eyes made huge by the water at the bellies of trout and the well of the rimpled world beyond. There's an indeterminacy, and then this is one of the... You know, this is the big problem, I think. Sutri is smart. He's one of the smartest and most self-aware characters that McCarthy has ever written, perhaps the most. And, you know, it is autobiographical, so perhaps a little pat on the back in a way. But he's self-aware and he's he's very, very smart and he's dry. But he's he's aware of this indeterminacy. And it's a question of, well... What should these characters do? And it's the great question, in a way, of modern life, I think, for young men born uh, after the boomer generation, is what do you do in a world where you see that the successes, dreams, hopes, desires of those that have come before you and they have had the means to sculpt and structure these desires and the society which is the norm what do you do when not only you realize it's not something you agree with but it's and it's not something you want but equally in the structuring of this thing we call modernity it has formed such a hegemony which anything alternative to it becomes not an alternative but becomes a distraction a alteration, a mutation. Any difference from modernity automatically becomes an outsider. And so when you're thrown into that notion of the outsider, of being on the fringes, there is a certain sense of you're towards an auth uh, a mode of authentic living which automatically isn't 
taken seriously and you're entering into a sovereignty where you need to form meaning but all the time you're trying to form meaning there's this indeterminacy in relation to the river which is strewing detritus past you so you have a sovereignty but it's a it's a grim grotty stressed sovereignty you know found in a sort of grimy houseboat the communal anchors around you are grotesque the, you know something is burgeoning here which isn't um isn't is nice mm. he looked at a world of incredible loveliness old distaff celt's blood in some back chamber of his brain moved him to discourse with the birches with the oaks a cool green fire kept breaking in the woods and he could hear the footsteps of the dead everything had fallen from him he scarce could tell where his being ended or the world began nor did he care he lay on his back in the gravel the earth's course sucking his bones a moment's giddy vertigo with this illusion of falling outward through blue and windy space over the offside of the planet hurtling through the high thin cirrus and this is the the breakdown the hallucination the typhoid hallucination at the end now the ending of the novel is usually read, it seems, as one of McCarthy's more optimistic endings. I disagree. I don't think it's optimistic. Now, what really happens at the end is you have this whole lifestyle that's slowly going, getting a bit worse. Nothing's really happening. Meaning can't be built. There's a refusal to enter into the river because the river is full of everything I've already said. So why would you want to enter into that river? The indeterminacy has been constantly ramping up and ramping up the fragmentation keeps splintering and the any ability to forge an identity is constantly thwarted by various mechanisms of the sort of heraclitian um malaise and malevolence of an unnamed ever moving god and what happens at the end Sutri packs up his stuff his friends have gone their own way Harrogate's in prison. Uh, J-Bone, who, is other, who you could say is his other closest friend who helps him out a lot of the time. J-Bone mentions that uh, he's finally got a, a 9-5 job and he, mentioned, he, he describes it as, yeah, I sit in the corner for eight hours and watch all the others do the work. You know, he's still in that, that mindset has sort of possessed him in the sense that he's never, never going to really be in that. And Sutri just gets out of Knoxville. He packs up his stuff and he is picked up by a car which he doesn't hail. So he doesn't, McCarthy uh, makes it very clear, very emphatic that he doesn't hold up his arm to pick up the car. So he's sort of whisked away, possibly by grace. And in that sense, there's a hope there that something has just carried him away from this life. But the reason I don't necessarily see it as optimistic, perhaps I don't see it as pessimistic ending, is to go back to his great hallucination, his great sort of breakdown. So there's a couple of times he has a bit of a, what we could call a breakdown throughout the novel, Sutri that is. And the, the major one happening at the end where he catches typhoid is, well, within this hallucination, we are given, you know, there's stereotypical McCarthyan glimpses of, you know, this, this sort of abyss-like world filled with eyes and, and demons and conversations with uh, nameless gods or God, etc. This McCarthyan um, trembling, 
in the deep, which he finds ways to bring in, whether in dreams or in strange desert visions like in Blood Meridian, or just in the prose as a means to um, emphasize the, the, the mythic quality of the world. Now, the difference and the reason I would lean more towards a pessimistic ending here with respect to this being the, cathar- the, 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 the anti-catharsis of Sutri as a character in terms of his leaving is that, well, when we, we're, we're told that this happened because of typhoid. And it's rare for, rare for McCarthy, I believe, to say to a reader, this, is, this vision's in a dream, in a vision, in a mystical experience. And yet emphatically we are told that this this um once again cathartic internal uh working out of various existential knots or working through something which might be bleak might might be not we're told it is physiological so we know it's we know it's a typhoid typhoid delirium and so for me this is pessimistic because i think it seems that such a exits his exit via because of exhaustion because you know there hasn't been meaning formed there hasn't his name changes time and time again the, the identity is still nothing's there it just it's not a case of perhaps it's just perhaps it is just a case of growing up but he leaves he's whisked away by some perhaps unknown grace something just randomly picks him up but where are we left the slums still exist the slums are an acknowledgement and the houseboat was an acknowledgement that all that other thing we can't really enter into and there's a reason that it was all denounced um forthwith anyway so what's that third option where is the where is the next sovereignty found after the dialectic of modernity an exit or modernity and outsider once that battle has been fought in all its indeterminacy and um, bleak Heraclitian you know washing where are we going after that and McCarthy here in uh, you know in 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 79 is forming a dialogue between Modernity, which rarely only gets a word in silently with respect to it being the negation. You know, we're constantly in the understanding of what we could be doing otherwise. We could be working at 9-5. We could have a family. We could have kids. We could be, uh, you know, in an institutional religion. These are all the things that have been denounced. So this is made as the silent negation from the very beginning. But if that's been denounced and then you, the denouncement becomes denounced or renounced, then where do we go? And that's the question we're left with, I believe. And that's why for me, well, we're left with a question that I'm not sure is strictly optimistic or pessimistic. Um, but I don't necessarily think it's nihilistic. I don't think that. I think the there are masses and masses of moments throughout this novel which uh, make it very clear that McCarthy isn't specifically nihilistic in this novel. There's nihilistic characters. But the friends care about each other a lot a lot of the people in the slums really care about each other they check in on each other they might be haggard miserable uh, beggars thieves alcoholics etc but they check in on each other they they, they look up af- they look after each other there's there's a sense of um camaraderie on the riverbanks 
of people who perhaps are a bit too scared to once again put their feet into the river to step and to form this identity. Um, and so this for me is like, it's almost like the quintessential McCarthy. Well, let me step back. McCarthy consistently does something where he will take a genre and not necessarily write the antithesis of it, but his, his novel within that new genre would take, for instance, does the same thing with no country for old men in terms of the, the sort of crime novel. Um, and his Westerns as well, Blood Meridian being the anti-Western. This is the, this is, the anti-idealistic young man novel, but equally not fully anti in the same sense that Blood Meridian, Blood Meridian, is it fully anti-Western? Um, there's still some sympathies in here. There's still these sort of fond farewells because the humor comes through as a fond farewell to those moments, but it's McCarthy's prose at its best. And I don't say that lightly. <laughs> um, it's extremely funny. And it takes a long time to read. It's possibly his most difficult book. In many, many words, which either you will, one will definitely have to get a dictionary to look them up, or are literally made by McCarthy himself. And so you'll have to work them out. Um, often strewn together in, in very long sentences of, you know, you'll need a dictionary for this one. But it's, but it's, so it's that, and then it's difficult in the fragmented sense. And you'll find yourself only really being able to read for the first half of the novel, I would emphasize. Once things begin to unspool and you begin to get the feel of the novel, it does move quicker. And there's an excitement behind it, like some sort of deranged action film in a way but it's you know you can think about these novels such as on the road the work of huntress thompson this somewhat idealistic approach to critique so from the criticisms of the rat race of this idea of exit of you know a more modern thoreauian exit you often find in yourself the first form of idealized existence in you know you can begin with the idealized form of suburban existence which they're exiting from and then you enter into another form of idealized thoreauian uh man in the woods cabin in the woods fringes of society society existence but we're not in either of these camps and we're finding an identity both these camps have their own rivers which are very murky murky in a way we're on the riverbank of the heraclitian river for this novel and that's what the most interesting thing about it is for me is what happens when you don't step into the river what does what happens to the place the river runs through if it never really enters into a dialogue of anchoring itself in the river of of making that leap um and so it's not it's not a third or a fourth position it's something else it gets it gets drawn into uh, another idea altogether so i would say it's like anti-Heraclitian, not in the sense of, you know, Heraclitus being everything's changing, not in the sense of Parmenides in the sense of being versus ever-changing, like things being or things ever-changing, not in that sense, but anti-Heraclitian in the sense that something unforeseen is happening with regards to meaning 
an identity when one acknowledges the river, but in the sense that one can step into the river, that implicitly makes it clear that not stepping into the river is still a decision and you, you can't be outside of the change, but you can be outside of the change within like one level. So you can just take a step back and there's the river, but what change are you then entering into? And that's the way I would possibly describe it as anti-Heraclitian, but it's fantastic. It's just his best. And it, it will take a, it would take you quite a while to read. It's one of his longest. I mean, the, the Picador edition that I have is 568 pages. I think the normal edition is still 400 or so, but it's, I believe it's his longest and I would say his toughest as well. Um, but it's his best. And, uh, I hope you've enjoyed this review. Thanks very much.